That line, you just do you, is just so good. <laughs> My wife and I love reading The uh, Honest Toddler. If you're a parent and have children between the ages of 2 and 10, you should read The Honest Toddler. It's so good. But she's got a line about how the child woke up at 4 in the morning having uh, peed the bed. <laughs> and instead of changing the sheets, just put a towel down. And the line goes, love is doing things halfway. <laughs> Grandma would change the sheets, but you just do you. Uh, that's been on my mind. I don't know why. All right, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 is where we are this morning as we continue our series walking through the letter of Colossians. Paul writing to this church. And we come this morning to what is the hinge passage for the entire book. <clears throat> This is the, these four verses are the, 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 the turning point moving from chapters 1 and 2, which are heavily theological and polemical in nature, and beginning to uh, be applied in chapters 3 and 4, the theological concepts and truths that are being talked about in those first couple chapters, and applying it very specifically and poignantly to our spiritual lives and our, our, our relationships and various aspects of our daily life as Christians but this morning, it will function in some ways because it's the hinge as a review, as a microcosm, as, a, as the book in a nutshell, what has gone on so far. And so there will be many concepts that you may have heard in our previous times together over the last couple of months. But it's important to review these things as we turn the corner towards very clear applications. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, hear God's word. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It sends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Well, since this is the hinged passage of our book, the turning point. Let's do a little bit of review of, of what we've done so far, an outline of our, our chapters uh, up to this point. Chapter one is about believing and trusting in the, the supremacy of Christ. And actually, in verses nine through 12, Paul gives us, before he even gets to the supremacy of Christ, he gives us this prayer in verses nine through 12 that sets the tone of what he wants to see out of the people of God in Colossae, where he describes his goal for the book, which is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he gives us a vision of what we should be pursuing in our lives, the hope and peace and joy that should be ours. But he says that we pursue that hope and that peace and that joy by knowing and understanding and most of all trusting in the sufficiency of Christ Jesus. So he focuses on that for the rest of chapter 1 after, after verses 9 through 12. So after doing that in chapter 1, he then turns the corner in chapter 2. And mostly what he does there is he defends the sufficiency or the supremacy of Christ against the attacks of the false teachers who have tried to infiltrate the church in Colossae. And so he says that he, he defends against these things that will stunt their growth, that will stunt their ability to actually walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, stunt their joy and their peace and their hope in Christ Jesus. And now what he does in chapter 3 and going on into chapter 4 is he talks about what it looks like to live under Christ's supremacy, to apply it to your life. In which the function of chapters 3 and 4, chapters 1 and 2 could be this, this is what you should believe. Now in light of that, do this. 
In light of these things, apply God's word to your life. And the turning point of the book here, though, the, 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 the key imperative that will lead to you to these, all these different aspects of your life being lived to the glory of God in a way that's honoring to him, whether it be in your marriage or in your parenting or just in the other ways of your daily life, is what he says here is to set your mind and seek the things that are above. This is the command that Paul gives this morning. This is the command that we're going to look to this morning. That is, in some, some ways, there's no words in that command that are very confu- confusing. Set your mind on the things above. But the things above, that's rather ethereal. So we're going to look at the things above this morning. Three points. First is the basis of setting your minds on things above. And your outline just say Christ because I didn't want to go into two lines on your outline. So I just said setting your minds on Christ. But setting your minds, the basis for setting your mind on the things above. Then we'll look at the practice of setting your minds on things above. And finally, very shortly at the end, we'll look at the power that comes from setting your mind on the things above. So first, the basis. What is the basis for setting your mind on the things above? Why should we put our minds and thoughts and seek the things that are above? Well, the answer is found in grammar. Yes, grammar. This is, we're going to start out right on the nerdy end this morning. And hopefully get a little more cool as we go along. Verse 1, it says this. If you then have been raised with Christ. If then, in other words, means since. In other words, it is saying, if as is the case. Since this is the present reality. Now, interestingly enough, it says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Now, that is an interesting phrase there. Raised with Christ. You say, I'm not even dead Yet, So how can I be, have been raised? Well, it's talking about spiritual things here. And it's talking here about a present reality or something that's actually already been done in the past. The verbiage of this phrase is, here's some really cool Greek big words for you, is an aorist, passive, indicative verb. I was feeling really insecure about your, um, your sense of understanding about how great I know the Bible. So I figured I'd pull out some exegetical words this week. So here's, here's, here's what an aorist verb is. And here it is from the Glossary of Morphosyntactic Database of Terminology in the Greek. That's the name of the book. An aorist is the verb tense used by the writer to present the action of a verb as a snapshot event in the past. Now we get over the nerdy stuff and we get to the point. An aorist, what it is saying is, it's a picture. This has happened already. You already have been raised with Christ Jesus. This is a fact of your life. He says that we see the same terminology in verse 3 again, where he says, just as you have been raised with Christ, so also you have died with Christ, it says there in verse 3. You've been raised and you have died. And then also it gives us one other present tense verb there, a, a verb that shows us what is a present reality in our life. And it says, for you have died with Christ and your life is hidden in Christ. Hidden in Christ. This is the present reality of your life. It is your spiritual life that you are hidden with Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is referring to, I think, perhaps the greatest truth that ever was. This is telling us and telling us the very essence at the most most central core and essence of what it means to be a Christian, it is this. It is to say that I am in Christ Jesus. More than saying, I believe in Jesus, so that's really important. That's the faith and the outward showing I worship Jesus. But more than anything else, the essence of what it means to be a Christian is that you are found in him. 
My life is in Christ. And what this means, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago under a different heading or different words, which is union with Christ. But this passage is giving it the exact same concept, which is that when we, we are so connected to Jesus spiritually, when he died, it was as if we died. When he was risen from the dead, we spiritually rose from the dead. This is a mystery that when Jesus died, we died. And when he was risen, we rose. The cantata sang it a couple, a couple weeks ago. Were you there? When talking about the incarnation of Christ, the birth of Christ, there's another old a spiritual that goes this way. The title of it is, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the reason why in hymnity and other songs they, they bring up that question is because in the sense of our union with Christ, our hiddenness with him, it is true. Yes, physically and historically you were not there, but spiritually and salvifically you were there. God considers you as having already died of your sins, of your old man being done away with. This is a mystery. Yes. Do we understand it? Not really. Is it true? Yes. Foundationally being hidden in Christ means his past is our past, his present is our present, and his future is our future. This is the, found, the theological foundation for all that we're going to talk about this morning. So spiritually, you're hidden in Christ. Now what this means is this is your most real reality. This is a real life we're living, this physical earthly life. But there's something that is more real. But why does Paul give us the directional statement? Set your mind and seek the things that are above. Now, really quickly, kids, does this mean that we should go through life staring up at the sky? Children, should you walk through life like this? What happens when you don't look where you're going? You run into things. So that's not what it means to just simply be looking up into the sky. Of course not. That would not be right. What does he mean? What he's meaning is that our focus is to be otherworldly. Our thoughts are to be pervaded by another realm, by another home, by heaven. That's what it is. That is the place in which our thoughts are to rest in. And the other question is, what is so great about heaven? Who is in heaven? Kids, Sunday school answer, Jesus is in heaven. Verse 1, seek the things above. Why? Where Christ is. So seek the things above. Why? Because your life right now is the present reality. You are spiritually hidden with Christ. And where is he? He is in heaven. This is the, the most real reality for you. Our present spiritual state before God. So there's the theology. Now that's really ethereal, isn't it? That's hard to grasp. So let's talk about how, how do we may perhaps practice these theological truths in our lives. So the practice of setting your mind on the things above. There is a both in this text, it says a positive and a negative in doing this. First is that you must turn away from setting your mind on the things of earth. You must turn away from lesser realities. Paul calls us away from that. Do you see what the negative is? Stop putting your mind and your focus and your greatest values on the earthly things. What does it mean to set your mind on something? To seek something? It is to make something your greatest value, your greatest goal. It is to set your heart and your mind on something for a, as the greatest motivation of your life. That's what it means to seek or to set your mind on something. So when it says, do not seek or set your mind on things of earth, it is saying, don't make the things of the earth the central facts of your life. 
Don't make them the motivating facts of your daily living. Live for something greater than this. So in order to seek out where these areas are in your life, you need to ask yourself some diagnostic questions. You know, diagnostic questions, you go to the doctor and you say, I have a pain here. And then they ask you a bunch of questions because the doctor is doing a diagnosis of you. What is going on? You must do a diagnosis of your heart and your soul. And so often, and this is why God brings difficult things in your life, it is in the middle of suffering or temptation, the temptation of suffering or the temptation of blessing. In my discipleship group, we call it heat or rain, these temptations that come into our life. And what we see is how do we respond to the heat or rain that comes into our life? What does it reveal about our hearts? In other words, what circumstances, what things, what objects, what relationships or conditions in our life, if the Lord took those things away from you, even for just a moment, would make life not worth living? Or would sing you for the hills and how angry you get that the God would have dared to take such a thing away from you? That reveals to you the thing in which you are leaning upon and you're looking in and you're living your life with that object that you want, that relationship that you desire, that accomplishment, that success that you want. That's the most ultimate reality of your life and you've set your heart and your mind on that thing. That is an idol. And so what we do in the practice of setting our minds on the things above is first is we must repent, we must reveal what those things are in our hearts and our lives and we must repent of them. We must go to the Lord, this, God, this is how my heart responded to that thing. That person cut me off in traffic. I wasn't going to be five minutes early to work, and I'm a time-oriented person, so this drives me crazy. This desire of my life was frustrated, and so I started swearing up and down. I wish death upon that person. All right? What did this reveal about my heart? It's revealed that what I want more than anything else, more than caring for the God's image bears, more than pleasing him with my language and my words and worshiping him, what I wanted more than anything else was for people to think nicely of me because I showed up five minutes early for work. Life went the way I wanted it to be lived. And when we come to God, we say, I wanted this. And that thing may not even be inherently sinful. I wanted this, God, and I wanted it more than you. And we lay it aside. We say, but that's the negative. So we lay it aside, but now there's got to be something positive, though. You've got to turn your eyes away from these, these things that you have desired, that you've set your mind and your hearts on, and you've got to turn them towards something better. And what is that something better? It is Jesus. So repentance is this. God, I wanted this. I confess I wanted this more than you. And this is how it was revealed in my life. But now after we do that, we repent of that. we got to preach ourselves the gospel. we got to turn to what we believe and trust in. And that is this. we got to say to ourselves, Jesus, you are better. You are better than this relationship that I've clung to, but now I must release. You are better than success at my job. You are better than this particular behavior in my child that I'm trying to squeeze out of them. You are better than these things. There's a beautiful chorus that I love Turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? And what happens? Look full in his wonderful face. And what happens to those things that we have set our minds and hearts on? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. The means by which you set your mind on something else besides the things of this earth is you have to find something more beautiful. This is where we ended last week. Now, in turning your eyes upon Jesus and fixing your gaze upon what is above, it helps us not just to remain it helps us to, to focus on that, 
But if, if we just talk about turn your eyes upon Jesus, that, that's a really sweet sentiment. And my heart is moved when I sing those, that chorus for a moment. But in turning your eyes upon Jesus, we are a people who are concrete. This whole union with Christ thing and this hiddenness with him is kind of too ethereal for us. But what we also need to see as we turn our eyes upon him and what he constantly calls us to is to see his great works and to see the great implications of what he has done for us. This is what Paul calls us to this morning in these passages, in these verses. What we need to see, we've got to see the facts of our salvation in Christ Jesus. Because in order to fight the facts of this world, it is a fact that you are suffering. We are not demeaning your suffering or saying you're suffering in this life and you lose your job. That is still indeed a suffering. We're not saying that this pain doesn't exist. But we need a reality that is greater. A fact, a fact that usurps the facts of this world. There is a great example for this in this season of the church calendar, isn't there? You see, after, after, after Mary gives birth... And after this, the, the angels sing, and the angels come and visit, and they all gather around the, the baby Jesus in the swaddling clothes, and then they leave. What does it say Mary did? And she pondered all of these things in her heart. This is the call to the Christian if you want to grow. If you want to live the fullness of the Christian life, is you must ponder the things of God, who he is, what he has done, and what it means for you. So here's some facts. And the facts take a historical Approach, a historical paradigm here from Paul this morning. There's a past fact, a present reality, and a future promise. Three facts. First, in turning your eyes upon Jesus and setting your mind on the things above, we set our mind on the facts of heaven. And here's the first fact of heaven, is that you have a past victory. The victory has been won. Victory over what? Two things, sin and death. It says in verse 1, Or verse 3, you have died with Christ. This means that in Jesus, the wrath that your sin deserves has been abolished. It has been poured out. You have already died. You have already, in a sense, received all the judgment that you can receive for your sin. The old man, the old self that ruled you, he is dead. And now what is for you? There is now what? No condemnation. Sin and death. Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that union for Christ terminology there. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from what? The law of sin and death. So we've been put to, our, our sins have been put to death. Our, the wrath of God for us has been put to death in the sense that it has been poured out on Jesus. Our old man, the old selfish man has been put to death. But also we've been raised to new life in Christ Jesus. What it means is Christ has defeated death. He has been victorious over all the consequences of our sin. See, Jesus not only lived the perfect life and died the perfect atoning death, but then he was risen to show that he had indeed defeated and covered all your sins and defeated all the consequences that your sin deserves. He proved that his righteousness and his perfection and his holiness is greater than all your sins. He has been victorious. So there's a past victory. Which means this, you don't have to be obsessed over your past sins. Whether those sins are past two seconds ago, two years ago, or 20 years ago, they are covered. There is no condemnation. The means to the fullness of the Christian life is to understand that. Here's the second historical fact, that we have present security. 
We have past victory. We have present security. First one, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus? At the right hand of God. What does that mean? That means he's at the place of supreme power and authority. No one can defeat him and defeat his purposes. And what is he doing, it says? He's sitting. That's such a great term. Sitting. What, who is it that sits? Rulers sit. Kings sit. In fact, theologically, what theologians call this, after Jesus was risen from the dead and he ascended, it is called the session of Christ Jesus. That he comes in and he sits down on his throne. That's what he went to heaven to do, to sit. Which means this, with all the suffering and all the difficult things going around in this world, even the pain in your life, you may pace, but he is not pacing. He is not wringing his hands over the bad things going on in this world. He rules and reigns supreme over all things because he sits over all things. All things are as a footstool underneath his feet. This is a calm and peaceful Messiah because he rules and reigns perfectly. He has already conquered and he is already enthroned. That is a present fact in reality. All that remains is the mop-up work. The, the fullness of the joyful experience of his kingship. And here's what this means for us, is that we are absolutely secure. Present security. We are described in these verses, where is our location? In, hidden, in Christ. That is a location word. Now you may be in a world, you could be in South Sudan, but the more ultimate location of your life is in Christ Jesus if you love and trust in him. Often we think about being hidden, we think of, we think of being hidden from something. And that is definitely a, a connotation of this word hidden. But more than that, it is a hiddenness with someone. It's hidden from something, but more than that, it is hidden with someone. I think about my children in the night. And they think about that they're scared. And they're thinking about the monsters that are in the closet or under the bed, as they would think. And that there's these, these evil things going on. And they're scared and they want to hide. But what comforts them more than anything else is not simply getting under their sheets and under their pillow. But what comforts them is who they're with. Which is why they call me five times a night. Because it matters most of all who you are with in the midst of the difficulties and sufferings of this world. This is why it matters when we say it seems so trite. And we don't say it with this meaning, the depth of the meaning that we ought to. But when we say Christ walks with you in this suffering. When Psalm 43 says, you will not be burned. You'll go through the fire, but I will go with you. That has enormous import for us. He is with us and we are in him. To be hidden is to be out of view. It's to be out of reach. To be utterly secure. I love the image that's given to us in Psalm 27. Psalm 27, David's talking about the, the, the one thing that he desires is to be and, and to see, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But what he goes on to say after that, though, is he uses this image of saying that God is his shelter. That he will hide, that God will hide me in his shelter. Now, the literal translation of the Hebrew word that is behind that word shelter can be translated lair. With the connotation of what is being given there in Psalm 27 is that he wants to be sheltered in the lair of God. What, what animal has a lair? Lions have lairs. What he wants is to be sheltered in the lair of the lion of Judah. And when the lion, this lion protects you, ain't no one's going to mess with you. 
at least not ultimately. Now, here's a quick side note on this. We're not making a false claim here. This is not necessarily going to protect you from Alzheimer's. This doesn't mean you're not going to get Parkinson's. This doesn't mean you won't lose a child before their time. This doesn't mean you won't lose your job or your spouse won't abandon you. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that he walks with you and that there is nothing that can pluck you from his hands even in the midst of those things. Nothing, nothing can snatch you from his hands. The image of a lion ought to be in your mind in the midst of suffering. The the devil is after me. This world is crushing me, but nothing will take me from him. Chuck Colson, you may remember Chuck Colson. He was a a great American figure, an evangelical figure in the church for many, many decades. He used to work for Richard Nixon during the Watergate era. And while he was in prison because of his involvement during those days, he became a believer and dedicated his life to serving uh, prisoners around the world. Started a ministry called Prison Fellowship, and he had great opportunities to go into some of the darkest dankest, disgusting places in all the world to minister to people. And he went one day, oh, he went to Cuba, and he began, got an opportunity to speak with a, with a, a man there in a, in a prison there. It was a particular prison um, there called, um, it was a circular cell. It was the worst of all prisons in Cuba. And, and the worst of the, the spies that Cuba thought they had would, would be sent there. It was actually, it was built by Batista in the, in the, the 30s, and it was so large and so dark and so nasty looking, people asked Batista, How, you, you can't possibly fill this up. And he said, oh yes, somebody someday will find a way to fill up this prison. His name was Fidel. He came along a couple decades later and he was very much willing to fill up that prison. And one of the, man, one of the men that he arrested was a Christian named Arnando Valadares. He was an anti-communist and he spent 22 years in this prison. He underwent brutal torture and psychological treatment and abuse But in 1983, he was released and got to meet with Mr. Coulson in Cuba. And he told Coulson that during the early days of his prison sentence, that he he would hear of fellow Christians. And they would do these executions of the Christians and the anti-communists. But he said that there was almost a, there was a pretty common occurrence over either every night or at least once a week in which the entire jail cell, there would be complete, complete silence. It was nighttime when they would do the executions. And you kind of hear the rustling of them taking a prisoner out to the execution yard. And all of a sudden, ringing in the silence of the night, they would hear someone say, Viva Cristo Rey. Long live Christ the King. And then they would hear gunfire, and there would be silence again. They eventually had to stop letting people just say whatever they want to. They gagged prisoners as they went to execute them because it so distressed the executioners. Even standing before a firing squad in this world, well, that firing squad is your wife and her words, your husband and his derision, or that's literally physical firing squad, you are secure in Christ Jesus. So you have a past victory. You have a present reality where you're hidden in Christ, but you also, we see here, the third fact is you have future glory. Verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ appears. This is what happens at the end of all things. We talked about this in regards to Christ's return, that just as he disappeared, he's going to reappear And this is a publicity verb, this word appears. It is to be made public. It is to be put on display. 
and we will behold. His glory will be on full display for all of us to see. But there's an unbelievable truth that gets communicated along with this. Whenever this idea of Christ's glory being revealed at the end of all things, there's one that we forget, and it is this, that when his glory is on display, our glory also is on display. When Christ is put on display, when all things are made true and the mystery of all the end of the ages is, made, is revealed, we are put on display as well. John Stott says this in commentating on Colossians 3 verse 4. He says that when we will appear with him in glory, it means this. Not only that will, will the Lord Jesus be glorified among God's people, as if they will be a theater or a stadium in which he appears, and not only will we be, he be glorified by them as if we will be spectators to worship him, and not only will be, there will be glory in which we are like a mere image or an imaging his glory, but we will actually be the conduit of his glory so that we will be glorious. Stott's point is that we will not only witness Christ's glory, but we will be enveloped with it, and actually his glory will move through us so that when people look at us, they will see the glory of God shining through us. Now, this reveals a whole new aspect of our hiddenness. Our glory right now in this life is hidden, but one day it will be revealed in Christ Jesus. The person that you sit next to right now, if they are in Christ, they are glorious in heaven. Right now. Now, you think, where is that in the scriptures? Let me give you three quick passages to show you the pattern here of Christ revealing glory and our glory as well. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's a physical glory. Second, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see the pattern. When you see, the primacy is God's glory. But in seeing his glory, you become glorious. Isn't this what happened to Moses? He saw the backside of God's glory. And the people of Israel said, you've got to cover your face. One last one, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Here's what this means for your life right now. When someone from your work steals your glory, when your boss is completely unjust and unkind in their accusations, when a peer doesn't hold up their end of the deal at work and you have to carry on more, when your child, who you give your life to day after day, treats you like trash, when the world scoffs at your values, at your God, and at you, when your spouse won't let you involved in their life, they they scorn you, 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 they won't let you have anything to do with their money, when they don't want anything to do with you at all, there's no connection. When your body is broken down, and when your body is anything but glorious, some of you are feeling that. Your body is anything but glorious. In all those instances, you don't have to cling to an earthly glory, to some scrap of control, of some scrap of, of honor and reverence and respect in this life. Instead, you can lay it down and say, he is my reward and he is my glory. And one day, he will be displayed as glorious and also he will display me as glorious. This is how you lay down your life today. This is how you become a humble person today. It is not, you don't have to be about your glory anymore in your marriage and in your parenting and at your workplace 
It's about God's glory. Because as you give glory to him, you become glorious. Like little rays of light that come pocking through the darkness of who you are. This is unbelievable. You will be glorious like Jesus is glorious. This is how it's going to work in heaven. We will see glory all around us. And we will see his glory. And we will spend all of eternity, as we see his glory, we will become more glorious. And then as we realize our own gloriousness, we'll be lifted back up to worship him for his glory and all that he's done for us. And it creates this beautiful cycle of all of eternity so that if you are the outside the windows of heaven, it would be like the lights of God's glory and all of his people's glory would be shining and flashing into greater beauties of light and gloriousness for all of eternity. This is what heaven's going to be like and this is what your future glory is. So you have a past victory, you have a present reality, a present security, and you have a future glory. Let me just give an illustration to close us this morning and talk about the power. There is a power that comes from this. It is the power to be humble. It is the power not to fret when you're in suffering. It is the power not to be crushed by guilt. Here's what Christians need. If you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to obey, if you want to give honor and glory to God, here's what you need. You need to be captured Your imagination needs to be captured with the beauty of who God is and all that he has done for you and all the implications for your life. You know, in the great great science fiction books and movies, there there is a theme. There's lots of themes that, that run through those kind of epic kind of films and epic stories. But one of them is this, is that almost always it starts, or the person who becomes the hero starts out very ordinary. They're very small. They're very, they may be a child. And they live a very kind of mundane and small life. But then they get caught up into another world, another realm, an, a, an adventure that is beyond their life. And as they go through that adventure, every, things become clear. That world, if you think of like the Chronicles of Narnia series, they enter that world and it's, it's larger and it's grander and the colors are brighter and good is gooder and bad is badder. And, and, and that's how the world appears and it's all very clear. And they run into glorious heroes and kings, these majestic creatures, but they also run into the most hideous creatures you could ever imagine. And throughout all of these great epics and all these great novels and these great stories, what ends up happening is they defeat, they defeat the enemy. They, 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 they bring redemption and victory right out of the jaws of defeat. And then they go back. Then they go back. They enter back into their world and back into their normal lives. But are, are they the same? They're not the same. In fact, they become these people who are kind of epic. They seem to be otherworldly. They're made of tougher stuff. They're both sweet, but courageous and bold. They're tough and tender. They stand up for justice and believe in truth, but they lay down their rights. They're willing to die at a moment's notice. They don't get frazzled. They're not impatient. They love well. They have emotional depth. Don't you want to be that kind of person, that kind of Christian? The kind of heroes of the faith? That's what Paul wants for you. But the means by which you get there is by remembering life in that other realm. Your life has already been lived. Jesus lived it for you. He lived it perfectly. He lived it gloriously. He won for you victory in that realm. And here's the truth, that as you apply what has happened to you in that spiritual heavenly realm and apply it to this life, 
heaven breaks in. Your life becomes glorious and you give glory and honor to him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, as I quoted from that, that song earlier, that Lord, tomorrow morning we wake up and we're, we are weighted down immediately by the pursuits of this world. Lord, I pray that we would see our, our devotional time not as a means of checking something off the box, but of sitting quietly and transporting ourselves to the truth of heaven to closing our eyes and and letting our imaginations roll with the beauty of all that is ours in Christ Jesus. Setting our minds and our hearts and pondering these things before we walk out the door in the morning. Lord, I pray that this would give us new lenses, a new paradigm for the way to do life, a new strength, a new fullness of joy as we see your beauty and your gloriousness. We thank you for these truths. I pray that you'd give us the ability to appropriate them and apply them to our lives in all areas. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen.